0: All right. Welcome back to Rock Reading Daily. We are still reading High Risers by Ben Austin, and we're going to go ahead and finish up this finish up this chapter that we're on right here. All right. Dolores Wilson. Dolores always claimed she didn't want to take on any additional responsibilities that she preferred to be a spectator, but that just wasn't true. In her own subdued way, she'd end up running six different committees. She showed up for the PTA meetings at Jenner, her children's school, and found herself elected treasurer and later president. She served on her building council, planning activities for the teens and younger children in the tower. The tenants celebrated the, quote, birthdays, end quote, of their high rises at Cabrini, the day coinciding with their address, and Dolores helped throw a big party in the 1,117 North Cleveland Rec Room every November 17th. She attended Holy Family Lutheran, a small cube of a church across the field from her apartment, joining its board and started volunteering with an organization that helped the formerly incarcerated manage their return to free society. She spent many hours as well at the Lower North Center. Her children attended camp there and used it for dance and music classes and sports. The center hosted the parties of the local high schools, a parents' group, and a social club that showed movies and took residents on fishing trips and to a Shakespeare festival in Stratford, Ontario. Adults gathered there for acting lessons, Hawaiian themed teas and for lectures by visiting scholars. The African-American historian John Hope Franklin, an expert on slavery and reconstruction, spoke to Cabrini residents about the two century struggle for freedom and equality. When Bobby Kennedy showed up at Cabrini in 1963 as part of his brother's presidential commission on juvenile delinquency, he walked the buildings and shot pool with teens at the lower north center. Quote. The feminine part of the staff agreed to keep the hand that the attorney general shook unwashed quote noted the Northside Observer, a regular feature in the Chicago Defender that was written in the decorous style of a high society registrar. Dolores Wilson was present at many of the affairs chronicled in these pages. She helped out with everything from back to school giveaways to Christmas bazaars, raffles and dances. She was a soloist in a, quote, musical extravaganza, end quote, and was among the diligent volunteers of a PTA rummage sale to whom the newspaper offered a, quote, low bow, end quote, of gratitude for being, quote, on hand into the wee hours of the morning with the detested sorting, end quote. The Cabrini Extension high rises were a low income development of some 10,000 people crammed together on isolated plazas set within a historic slum. There were bound to be issues. Shortly after the Wilsons moved in, drivers delivering milk among the 15 towers complained that teens were sneaking into their trucks and stealing bottles. In the enclosed stairwells and elevators hidden from sight, children rode over the walls. Laundry machines were broken and mailboxes bad so they couldn't open. In one of the high rises neighboring the Wilsons, two men on the seventh floor robbed another man of his television and then, as a daily reported, quote, shot him in the eye for no reason, end quote. On the corner of Division and Larrabee, on the northwestern edge of the complex, a mass of teenagers brawled. But Dolores felt like her sixth flat on the south side had experienced more disturbances than the entirety of her 19-story high rise. And at Cabrini, she and her neighbors got together to try to deal with problems. They formed self-protection clubs and patrolled the laundry rooms, elevators, and corridors. Residents petitioned the Housing Authority to enforce rules, respond to maintenance calls, and support programs that engage the large number of children living there. They started a law and order commission and demanded that the police carry out foot patrols and do something about the drunks from the taverns on Chicago Avenue and the roaming prostitutes from the warehouse district to the south. Saul Alinsky, the father of the Chicago style of community organizing came to the auditorium at St. Philip Benizi school to advise a new tenant leadership group that called itself a better Cabrini organization. Alinsky told the Cabrini residents what they'd already realized from their experiences. They would have to show power in numbers if they hoped to exert influence over the CHA, the police and city hall. I think what I want to point out there or what stands out to me there is is when when people speak about currently the lack of cooperation that communities of color or black communities or 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 co- low in low income working class communities have with police the lack of a relationship that they have the lack of trust that exists is precisely because of this time period where police the police were and the institution of policing were allowing crimes to take place in these areas because of the fact that it was black people who lived there because of the fact that uh, it was not nobody cared what happened to these people besides these people Uh, and so in the same in the same thing where it was a lot easier it or the the headlines stood out a lot less back then when it was a black person being killed here or there, or a black house being robbed into or broken into here or there. And it's, uh, as opposed to now where you see these things is sort of like, uh, on the, you see these th- you see crime, uh, on the headline news every day. You see it uh, on social media news every day, you know, back then this information wasn't being disseminated as well. And so it was easy to just sweep these things under the rug. And, uh, you see how regularly, uh, black people and, and, and people living in uh, substandard conditions have not only just asked for more police or heavier police presence, but they also ask for uh, other resources uh, they all, that, that can help people to uh, not be reverting to crime or not feel the need to resort to crime or that can empower people to feel like to, to let them know that they are above uh, crime. Uh, But regularly, the only thing that they were ever given is policing, is more arrest. And and so I just think that that's something that's important to point out when we start to speak about why the relationship with police and communities of color are at the place that it is now. And why even people in these communities feel as if they don't have regard or respect for the laws because it has been uh, delegitimized in their eyes because of their experiences, because for decades, for over a century, uh, police. And the institution of policing and the city governments have allowed crimes to take place in certain neighborhoods, have allowed for certain neighborhoods to have the kind of conditions that produce crime. Mayor Richard J. Daley, his son will tell you, never aspired to have public housing high rises built in Chicago. Quote, it's a big fallacy that he wanted all this. It's total BS. He knew more about it than anyone else. He knew this would make them like a prison, end quote. Richard M. Daley, the mayor of Chicago from 1989 to 2011, has declared this many times when asked about the legacy of the city's public housing, his eyes fixed on the pages of a U.S. Senate hearing transcript from July 1959. The first mayor, Daley, had gone to Washington that year to complain that the federal dollar limit allotted for each unit of public housing was prohibitively low, allowing only for the construction of densely packed towers, Daley explained to the senators his hope, quote, to make it not only high risers, but also walk up in row houses, end quote. What the first mayor Daly may have desired above all else was a bigger share of the federal kitty. But his son sees in the Senate hearing proof that his father has been remembered mistakenly as the creator of Chicago's public housing systems. Quote, this is not going to go well, end quote. As my father explained, the younger Daly clarified, quote, of course, the federal government, always in their wisdom, goes ahead with it, end quote. It's true that Richard J. Daly took office after the city council voted to place new developments in existing black neighborhoods, after Elizabeth Wood was fired from CHA, and after 15,000 of Chicago's 43,000 units of public housing were already built or under construction. At the ceremonial groundbreaking for the Cabrini Extension Towers on April 23rd, 1955, Mayor Daly dug up several piles of dirt with a silver-painted shovel as photographers snapped his picture. A crowd of a thousand onlookers broke through police lines in an attempt to shake his hand. It was one of Daly's first official acts as mayor, as he'd been sworn in only the previous day. Born in 1902, Daly grew up in a bungalow in the south side neighborhood of Bridgeport, a mostly Irish community that included the Union Stockyards, which put 40,000 people to work, dismembering and packaging most of the nation's meat. In the 19th century, the area had actually been called hardscrabble, and the Irish immigrants who filled it took jobs digging the nearby Illinois and Michigan canals. Daly, as a teenager, was president of the Hamburg Athletic Club, a group of local toughs, boys from the same parish and operating out of the neighborhood ward office. Daly's, quote, youth organization, end quote, was similar to other groups of teen boys found in many impoverished ethnic or migrant communities. They fought at sport, defended their blocks, and usually aged out of street violence as they took on new roles available to them. In Bridgeport, depending on one's abilities, that meant a job either on the, quote, disassembly lines, end quote, of the stockyards, in municipal work, or in politics. Daly was a short, pugnacious man whose resting face was a tight-lipped scowl. He possessed neither an abundance of charisma nor eloquence, and his rise in the Cook County Democratic Organization was not meteoric. He held a series of positions within the rigid hierarchy of the party, showing fealty to superiors but also lobbying to move up the ranks. He worked in the county's treasurer's office and as state representative, a state senator, the state director of revenue, and as county clerk. An intensely private man robed in tailor suits, he proved hardworking and he proved hardworking and tough and honest. In 1953, he was named chairman of the Cook County Democratic Central Committee, second in command behind only Mayor Canelli. Canelli, summed up by the journalist A.J. Libling as, quote, a bit player impersonating a benevolent mayor, end quote, had failed to quell racial unrest in several transitioning neighborhoods and made the greater error of cutting back on patronage positions in favor of nonpolitical civil servants. In the next election, the party put Daly's name, not Kennelly's, on the ballot. The city's famed Democratic machine, which controlled Chicago politics for 50 years, was the invention of Anton Cermak, who took over as mayor in 1931. Cermak would go on to operate it for only a brief time. Two years into his mayoralty, while in Miami, he was greeting President-elect Franklin Roosevelt when an Italian immigrant, inflamed by a general disdain for the rich, fired several shots at FDR. The assassin missed his target but managed to strike five bystanders, including Sir Mac, who later died from his wounds. Quote, I'm glad it was me instead of you, end quote, Sir Mac supposedly uttered to Roosevelt on the way to the hospital. The words later inscribed on his tomb in the Bohemian National Cemetery on Chicago's north side. Chicago, one of the machine, was often called, quote, the city that works, end quote. But output and efficiency are at best byproducts of machine politics, which is fundamentally a maker of self-perpetuation. A ward boss does out patronage jobs and the secretaries, park attendants and sanitation workers who owe their livelihoods to him raise money for the party. And come election time, they get out the vote for the entire slate of machine candidates. The ward, in turn, is rewarded with city services, investment and additional jobs to dispense while the party remains in control of the purse strings. Once in office, Daly wasted no time demonstrating how he would consolidate power over his next 21 years as mayor. At his inaugural, he announced that he was relieving the city council members of their, quote, administrative and technical duties, end quote. Constituents had previously gone to their aldermen for everything from requesting a building permit to reporting a road in need of paving. No longer. Now they would travel downtown to City Hall for a brief audience with the mayor in his fifth floor office. Everyone in the city needed to know that they were indebted specifically to, quote, the man on five, end quote. Quote, there can be no organizations within the organization, end quote, Daly famously pronounced. In his first two years as mayor, Daly increased the number of patronage jobs by 75 percent and the number of exams administered for civil service was cut by more than half he oversaw a top-down system of leveraged loyalty and reciprocal favors. Daley believed in his virtue without apology. Once, when urging President Lyndon Johnson to appoint one of his Chicago guys as a U.S. attorney, Daley summed up his case by saying, quote, But more than that, Mr. President, let me say with great honor and pride, he's a precinct captain, End quote. Like other industrial cities along the Great Lakes, Chicago was swooning by the time Daley took office, quote, a jukebox running down in a deserted bar, end quote. Nelson Algren wrote of Chicago in the 50s. The population fell fast from its 1950 peak of three point six million businesses abandoned the city at about the same rate. Chicago lost more than 50,000 manufacturing jobs in the seven years before Daley's first term. Daly's plan to, quote, save, end quote, the city focused primarily on the central business district. And under his administration, the city would build hundreds of new office towers, including the Prudential Building, McCormick Place, the Civic Center and the Sears Tower. He presided over the creation of a revised zoning code that freed up where developers could build luxury residential high rises. And even as people departed for the suburbs, Daly made it easier for them to travel back to the flagging city for business, commerce and pleasure by constructing highways, the largest underground downtown parking system in the country with 8000 spaces and underground walkways leading directly to office buildings and department stores. You could return to the changing inner city without ever having to be exposed to it. Daly might have argued for low rise public housing before the Senate, but if, quote, high risers end quote were what was available, high-risers were what he built. Millions of federal dollars were at stake, representing thousands of jobs and many big union contracts. As Chicago made upgrades to its centrally located communities, public housing also became a tool wielded to assist the developers involved in the rebuilding. Those displaced by government-funded urban renewal had to be relocated somewhere else. They were moved into the new high-rise projects. Almost all these families were African-American, not for nothing was Urban Renewal referred to ruefully as, quote, Negro removal, end quote. White still made up 13 percent of the families in CHA properties, but they lived almost exclusively in low rise developments and senior buildings. Daly had inherited a faulty public housing system, but he was responsible for doubling its size. With 43,000 units, Chicago became home to the second largest stock of public housing in the nation, well behind New York with 180,000 units, and technically behind Puerto Rico, too. Most of the new public housing went up on the south side, with densities greatly exceeding what the CHA had previously allowed. The Robert Taylor Homes, named almost ironically in honor of the agency's African-American chairman who pushed for integration, replaced a big chunk of the federal street slum and became the largest public housing complex in the world. It's 28 nearly identical 16-story towers stretched in groups of three along a narrow 95-acre band. The buildings would extend the State Street Corridor of Public Housing from Hillier Homes, just south of the loop, through the Harold Ikes Homes, Dearborn Homes, Stateway Gardens, and on to Robert Taylor. It was a largely uninterrupted four-mile wall of public housing cut off from points west by the newly constructed 14-lane Dan Ryan Expressway. And in 1962, the city completed the William Green Homes, the last portion of what came to be known as Cabrini Green. The development was named for a longtime leader of the American Federation of Labor who took over the union from Samuel Gompertz. The AFL had been found guilty of illegally excluding blacks from the unions building the Cabrini Row Houses. The Green Homes consisted of 1,096 apartments, and eight exposed concrete towers of 15 and 16 stories spaced within a tidy triangle of land formed by Division Street and the point formed to the north by the intersection of two diagonal avenues, Clybourne and Ogden. The buildings' concrete frames and precast concrete sectionals were of the same sandy beige color, and the towers looked like giant computer punch cards. They came to be known as the, quote, whites, end quote, in contrast to the, quote, reds, end quote, Across Division Street to the south Including the row houses And its 23 high rises Cabrini Green now consisted of 3,600 units of public housing All of it on a total of just 75 acres of land Okay, and then that brings us to a, a Changing in the theme in this chapter What stands out to me in that passage A couple of things stand out to me in that passage One, the first thing is I've, I've heard a lot about Mayor Daley This is the first that I've Read in any piece of literature specifically about him, but from documentaries and from uh, speeches, I have heard about him and heard about the some of the 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 things that happened in Chicago underneath him. A lot of people uh, doctor when Dr. King came to Chicago. To, in the hopes of integrating housing and uh, trying to get better housing conditions for people. Mayor Daley and his Democratic machine were the people who uh, ran Dr. King out and made it impossible for Dr. King to try to make some of those changes he was trying to make. Mm. Another one of the things that stands out here is they spoke about how when Daley came into office, he. Specifically, they talked about him. Building highways, they talked about the, uh, let me see, let me see, I can find it real quick. Uh, Okay, talked about him building highways, talked about him uh, building businesses and uh, building underground uh, parking and underground walkways. And all of these things were done in an effort to try to get more people to come back to the city because the city, before he came into office, was starting to lose uh, lose residence and I bring that up to say that that is one of the things that is common in cities is that in common in uh, this country is that a, a political so a political Figure comes into office and instead of trying to uplift the people at the bottom of this of his city or the bottom of the community or the the least of his constituents, what they begin to do is to try to do things that will benefit the highest of their constituents or the constituents that are in the, the uh, highest place or in the uh, the constituents that are the least the least vulnerable as opposed to trying to help those that are the most vulnerable and that happens because it is the people who are the least vulnerable who get them into office it is the business the people in big businesses the uh The people in unions who help get, as was pointed out in here, who help get these people into office. And so when mayors come into office, even older people, uh, senators, governors, when they come into office, they are not indebted to the little man. They're not indebted to the constituent who has... Nothing to eat tomorrow, and has no uh, job, and doesn't know where he's going to sleep at the next day, or they're going to sleep at the next day, or the single mother—they uh, they feel indebted to the people who don't who loaned out money for them for their uh, campaign. They feel indebted to the people who pull strings to help get them uh, elected. And so I think that that is that points out one of the reasons why we can't look towards electoral politics uh, alone to fix some of these situations, because the people who get elected will all always be indebted uh, to the people who help them get elected. And most of the times, majority of the times the people who will be responsible for someone being elected are not the most vulnerable in the society. It is actually going to be the people who are the least vulnerable in the society. You can't even uh, run a a proper political campaign without money, without funding. Uh, And then also we see here the, as we're getting into the 1950s, we see how the, issue of the public housing is ballooning and how they continue to stack poverty on top of poverty, uh, and how they continue to the people that are stacked on this poverty, this people who are stacked on this poverty on top of poverty are in a very small area. It's not even a wide area. They're trying to, uh, they're isolating them and then they're stacking as many people as they can into this isolated area. And so you see how, uh, you see how th- this is a, a recipe for a, a disaster, uh, <clears throat> and so those are all multiple things that sort of stand out to me there. I think it was one other thing. We and then now we get we as we're getting here we get to see how the name Cabrini Green uh, was was put together was came came about from the Cabrini houses and then also from the William Green homes. And then they also talked about how the white people who were living in public housing were not living in the high rises. They were living in uh, the walk-ups. Uh, and so again, you see the, the discriminatory relationship that black people have had with the city of chicago and i can't can't emphasize enough how this is not simply something that only took place in chicago only happened in chicago as was pointed out here new york and puerto rico both had uh, more public housing than chicago did okay let's knock this last little part out for this chapter Dolores wilson When Hubert Wilson was assigned the graveyard janitorial shift for the Red Cabrini Extension high-rises, Dolores decided she'd take a job during the day. She worked on and off at the Spiegel Catalog Company, sending out letters to people who hadn't paid their bills. She had a position as a receptionist for a doctor, as a clerk at a cleaners, and for a while at the Department of Veterans Affairs Employment Center. Just as her mother had done on the South Side, Dolores started going door-to-door for the local precinct captain, traveling up and down her high-rise, talking to every tenant, telling them when to vote and whom to vote for. When the ward organization held its big raffle, she sold tickets, coming out of pocket for any of the ones she couldn't foist on others. It was no small expense. Quote, but that's the way it is, end quote, Dolores would say. Quote, it isn't what you know, it's who you know, end quote. She was right. The precinct captain came to rely on Dolores, and when a bundle of patronage jobs was being divvied up, he raised her name. In 1966, she started at the city's Department of Water Management, just a few blocks east in the Chicago Avenue pumping station across Michigan Avenue from the old Chicago water tower. She was the only black person there in an office that handled paychecks for the entire department. Many nights, she'd hustle back to Cabrini Green from the water department, cook dinner for the children, help them with homework, and then rush out again for a meeting at Holy Family or Jenner Elementary or the Lower North Center. In addition to his janitorial work, Hubert also coached the basketball and the baseball team that their sons joined. When they lived on the South Side, Hubert had been in the National Guard, and at Cabrini Green, he started a drum and bugle corps that he named the Corsars. Three other janitors helped him. Two were named Brown, and for their different complexions, Dolores called them, quote, Red Brown and, quote, Black Brown end quote, though not to their faces. The men went to Montgomery Ward to get the fabric to make the Corsairs' pirate uniforms. Neither the Wilson children nor many of the other boys and girls in the Corsairs could read music, but they learned the beat and picked up the songs easily enough. The boys who didn't play instruments turned mock... Excuse me. The boys who didn't play instruments turned mock rifles in lockstep, and the girls twirled batons and flags as majorettes. They practiced in the field outside 1117 North Cleveland and the other surrounding towers, people looking down on them from a 100 different ramps or watching them from in front of the building. Soon, the Cabrini Green Corsairs were traveling to suburbs outside Chicago, marching in parades for St. Patrick's Day and Memorial Day and winning trophies at competitions. Occasionally, amid their work jobs and their volunteer jobs and all that parenting entailed, Dolores and Hubert found time to go out together. Sometimes they just sat outside in the park beside the high-rises, laughing and talking. It was beautiful out there, Dolores would say. Quote, green grass everywhere, flowers, no blacktop or broken glass, end quote. Hubert loved jazz, and he'd invite people over to the apartment to listen to records. But the two of them also went out with the other janitors and their wives. South of them, behind Montgomery Ward, was a ghost town of warehouses come night. But there were some clubs on Chicago Avenue that they frequented. Dolores favored the Chicago Lounge. It wasn't fancy, but the people there treated them like regulars, remembering their names and what they drank. The DJ spun records Dolores wanted to hear. If someone asked her to dance, she'd have to get Hubert's permission. Quote, he was jealous, jealous, jealous. End quote, she would say. Quote, that man wouldn't believe a black cow gave white milk. End quote. She didn't give him anything to worry about. She was ever faithful. But if they were apart for 10 minutes, he'd ask where she'd been and with whom. They'd argue some nights over these petty exchanges, though come morning they never parted without an apology, trading kisses and saying, quote, I love you, end quote. Dolores had been a teenager when they married, and the two of them still walked the land at Cabrini Green holding hands. At the Chicago Lounge, Hubert would look over the guy who wanted to dance, sizing him up and say, quote, yeah, go on, baby. End quote. It wasn't close dancing. It was jitterbugging the bop, the chicken, quote. But heaven forbid that guy asked me for a second dance. End quote. Dolores remembered. And that brings us to the end of chapter two and the beginning of chapter three. And we will end this episode here so that way we can start anew on chapter three. Instead of picking it up in the midst of the chapter And that last little part was just uh, I don't think it's really a deep deep dive to be had on that It was just sort of keeping us up to date With Dolores and, and Hubert's uh, experiences In in the row house Oh, not the row houses, in the high risers Okay, so I want to encourage people to please Listen to previous episodes of Rafa Reading Daily If you have not uh, if by the time you listen to this, there are future episodes out, please go listen to those future episodes. We put these episodes out every day to present people the opportunity to begin or further their journey on the stru- in the struggle to end police, terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice. Please follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Instagram. Like us on Facebook. Uh, subscribe on YouTube. Follow us on TikTok. We on all social medias. Uh, we outside. Back tomorrow.